Listener Production. Automotive commentator and journalist Greg Rust, and this is Rusty's Garage. This episode is about a lifelong quest to be the fastest Aussie on earth. Roscoe McGlashan is a bit of a legend, very proud of his West Australian roots, and that's in fact where we find him for this chat at the Perth workshop where his very dedicated team are helping to shape what is effectively a rocket on wheels, a horizontal-looking missile called Aussie Invader 5R, designed to do a 1,000 mile an hour. That's 1,600 kilometres an hour and never leave terra firma. It's an incredible feat of engineering that in many ways is groundbreaking because it asks a huge amount of the componentry. Some clever people have worked on this project, but really, only a land speed record attempt will confirm the simulations, and if it can withstand the rigours of going where no human being on Earth has gone before. In automotive and racing terms, it's a bit like being the first to summit Mount Everest. Roscoe is a straight shooter, as ochre as they come, and even at 70 years of age, his insatiable desire to just go fast burns like a never-ending supply of that special rocket fuel mix he needs. McLashen discovered his love of machines and speed very early on in life, and it became an obsession. Well, Rusty, it's a, it's a pretty long story, mate. I'm just, uh, in, in, in saying this, I've just celebrated my 35th birthday twice, so uh, I wasn't until, <laughs> until last week I looked back, I was like, go on, buddy, 70. And um, I've got no... Uh, no, no per- perception of time, mate. So, but anyway, going back to uh, yeah, my young days. So, uh, yeah, I suppose uh, to start from the beginning, I had a uh, born up in uh, in Perth, in Western Australia, one of the suburbs, and mum and dad had a bit of a fierce relationship, and uh, they're on and off, and and what have you. So, I ended up in a uh, in a home in Perth. Yeah, we uh, at the school we went uh, the school we went to next door. We weren't allowed to kick the footy or play cricket or do anything. All the other guys did. So me and uh, me and my best mate, we uh, we started playing our own game. We'd come and we'd sit down in the dormitory with our backs to the wall and we'd listen to motorcycles, trucks or cars go past us and I'd say, oh, that's a uh, that's a such and such truck. And I'd say, no, no, it's a such and such. You jump up or you ride or whatever. And um, we're taken with cars and motorcycles and stuff like that at a young age. So at, um, at, at, at 10 years of age, I was given a job uh, to, to, to keep me busy. So I had a job on Saturdays and Sundays cleaning boats out, cleaning uh, down at the local shipyard. Because I was a little guy, I could climb inside and clean all the, the, the wood boats. I cleaned all the dust and crap out and paint them, whatever. Saved up some money and, um, and uh, yeah, I, I was doing pretty good. And then uh, at age, uh, age 12, I, uh, I started high school. And I uh, started high school. I was only there for a week, I've got to tell you, but uh, I think I was, I knew me gazenters and um, here I was, <laughs> I knew me gazenters here. I thought I was clever enough to sort of leave. So I had my own car at that time and I'd driven it to school, but I just had to hide it around the, around the uh, back of the school. And uh, so as I say, I was there for a week and uh, I come out one day and there's the, uh, the headmaster Lynn on the hood of my car and uh, he said, McLashen, you little asshole. He said, I might have known this would be yours. <laughs> he said, what are you doing with the car at your age? And uh, and whatever. I said, well, sir, I've worked for it and I've bought it and I paid, paid 40 quid for it. And uh, 
He said, I'll tell you what to do. He said, get your ass in that car. And he said, if I ever see him again, you're going to find yourself in jail. So uh, anyway, uh, and he said, besides, that's my parking spot you're in. And uh, <laughs> anyway, so I headed off into the sunset at age 12 and, um, yeah, ended up out there about 500 mile out of Perth and uh, pulled up somewhere, didn't know where I was going, pulled up and uh, saw some guys putting a, uh, putting a tin roof on a, on a big wheat bin and went over and asked if they wanted the hand to, 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 uh, to, to get the job done and put the age up to 16, of course. And uh, yeah, went working, but the ambition was always to uh, always to set a uh, a land speed record. And at the same time, I left school. I should have mentioned at the same time I left school, Donald Campbell came across here in 1963, and was running uh, running at Lake Eyre, as you may or may not recall, uh, Lake Eyre. And uh, anyway, he's had a lot of troubles with weather and different things. And um, anyway, I said to my mates at school, I said, "Bloody palms!" I said, "Jesus, I went, what are they doing?" I said, "My car's going to go a heap faster than that." And uh, obviously they all laughed at me at uh, yeah, 12 years of age. They all laughed at me. And uh, the bottom line is I've been on the trail of the land speed record ever since. I love it. And, uh, yeah, so it's been one, one hell of an apprenticeship, Rusty. I've, uh, you know, I've, I've done everything in, 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 well, not everything, but just about everything you can possibly do for a backyard guy in motor racing. I've, I've driven rocket funny cars. I've driven rocket go-karts. I've V8 motorcycles. I've um, speedway vehicles, motorcycles, the works. And, um yeah, anything that had wheels that could go fast, I've had a go at it. And um, but the land speed thing has always been my ambition, and to me, I've treated the land speed record as an apprenticeship, and um, yeah, to, to go fast. Let's talk about some of those other vehicles as we go in the the discussion here. I want to come back to that first car. What was it? What was your first car? It was a. I've got to get the year right. It was a fifty fifty four custom line Ford custom line, and uh, yeah, I still marvel at these days. I think the guy must have felt sorry for me. I paid forty quid for it, and. Um, <laughs> I paid forty quid for it. I think even in those days it must have been worth a lot more than that. But I really, I really can't recall. But uh, yeah, it was a, it was a good vehicle. I ended up, uh, yeah, I ended up doing a lot of things with that car. I drove across the Nullarbor when the Nullarbor was shut, and uh, yeah, had, had, a, had a lot of fun. You, you are, you pointed out your birthday there before. You're like a twenty five year old trapped in a in a seventy year old's body. I reckon that's probably the best way to sum you up. You guys really are, Roscoe, like like mountain climbers, you're, you're pioneers in so many ways. And I'm really glad that you brought up the likes of, of Donald Campbell before and even, um, you know, Sir Malcolm Campbell. Though, were those guys, the, you know, uh, among those that you looked up to in this quest to be the, the fastest on land? Greg, I've got to be honest, mate, uh, no, they're, they're not. I always looked at guys, um, yeah, I always looked at Malcolm Campbell, Donald Campbell, well, obviously Malcolm Campbell, don't get me wrong, with absolute legend. So Malcolm Campbell, absolute legend, and um, obviously he was a pioneer. When you talk about pioneers, he was a pioneer at the time. Yeah, I look at the Pep Donald and people like him, George Easton, the guys like that, money guys that could go out and a lot like Formula One, I suppose. If you've got the money, you can you can, you can go and do it. So you know, there's always been three ingredients to settle land speed record. There's the desire. You need a heap of desire. You need a heap of dough, and you need that. You need the skill. And um, well, we've got two of those ingredients, but we've never ever had any money. But as I say, I, I, my heroes, my, my, my heroes in the land speed thing are, um, yeah, and, and the land speed record chasers are people like Craig Breedlove, who's a good friend of mine. Um, Craig's still talking about putting another car together, 800 mile hour car together, and he's, he's 70, 76, I think he is now. And um, yeah, Art Arfons is a legend, the junkyard genie. You'll see Akron, Ohio, he was a guy that would walk into a junkyard and say, I'll have the front end out of that, and I'll take the back, back, back hubs off that, and I'll do this, and I'll do that. They come over the bucket load of shit and bloody put a car together and go fast, <laughs> very fast. And, 
Yeah, just an amazing guy. And, uh, you know, there's a lot of incredible stories with stuff that Art did. And uh, they're the sort of guys that inspire me. But sadly, I think the, the, the thing for us is like um, people say, well, Lance Speed record, who really cares these days? You can do that on a computer or whatever. And whether what we're doing is right, wrong or indifferent, it's, a, uh, it's a something where, just as I say, it's my lifetime work, my, my life's work to... Uh, to achieve the impossible, and we already, we already say we've achieved the impossible. We built a car here in the shed, in my home shed, and uh, we went at 638 mile an hour in that back in uh, 2002, um, which is faster than any car gone in the world. And uh, But we can only do it one way. We had seven kilometres of water on the track. We couldn't back it up. And uh, But, yeah, I, I, always, I say to people, we've already achieved the impossible and uh, we're now out to achieve the unthinkable with this new car. We want to talk about the new car in more detail as we go here in the podcast. Can we pinpoint a couple of key machines along the way for you? I want to, One that I did a little bit of homework on, and you might correct me if I don't have this quite right. Let's start with, was it called Crazy Horse, the Chevy V8-powered motorbike? No clutch. Is that true? Yeah, that's yeah. Well, where that came from, Greg? Yeah, that was a. Uh, I uh, I sort of got around the uh, got got around the tracks for a long time. As I say, I had to, the ambition was always to set the land speed record, but it wasn't really till I was about uh, eighteen that I got invited to join Walt Warner as their manager in um, in Brisbane. So I left Perth and went across there to running their new automatic shop they set up there. And in the throes of being over there, I met uh, met, met one of Brisbane's legends, a guy called Wally Pushkey, the Gold Coast gutsman they call him, and. Um, and his lovely crew, fantastic crew. And uh, anyway, uh, yeah, I got to, uh, they asked me if I could make hand the crew on the bike. And uh, anyway, so we go down to Surface Paradise and this is the most amazing thing I've ever seen in drag racing. I kid you not. You see top fuelers, you see, you see all sorts of neat machines. Crazy horse. To see, to see that ridden by Wally was just something unbelievable. And um, anyway, but, you know, the, 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 the thing with it is no clutch, whatever. And um, anyway, but um, it the exciting thing with Surface Paradise was that they used to, when something, when they had a good machine on, it was a really good ploy for the track to sort of stall for time. You could blow it open the gates halfway in the in the middle of the track and the pits were sort of in the, at halfway down the, down, down a quarter mile. Pits were there and then the good came out, like, you know, American imports and stuff like that or top fuel as they had. They'd, so here they come and they pull them out through that gate and tow them all the way down to the start line under the big tyre at the end, under the big Dunlop tyre. Turn around and then, but it's stall. It just you know everyone to get perked up. So, oh, gee, these things are in the minute and whatever. That was really good. But um, the good thing with the V8 bike was you could uh, you, you start in the pits and at a light or thirty mile an hour. This thing, so you start in the pits and be running, running ahead, <laughs> clearing everyone out of the way, and and but you'd turn the thing out, turn it down towards the bridge to, towards the start line, give everyone a wave, and just grab the throttle and blaze the tire all the way down to the down to the uh, bridge. Not the engine off, kill switch near the throttle, not, not, not the kill, kill switch off to pull it up on the, on the engine. There'd be someone down there waiting with a little dolly to go under the back wheel, pull it around, push it into stage, put the stand out in the back. And then um, we had a guy, uh, Bobby Allsop, he's absolutely, absolute trooper. He's not with us any longer, but he built like Arnold Schwarzenegger, this guy, and he had the job of starting the bike. So back in those days, we didn't have aircraft starters or stuff like that. So we had a bloody common old bloody Ford or something, custom line or something, flywheel with a starter in a cradle. And I'll tell you, man, you put this thing in there, we had a metal harmonic balancer um, that you plug this thing into a metal harmonic balancer and they hit it and hit the switch. This thing would spin up and probably as soon as you hit the, hit the revs, they go up six, 7,000 RPM. And poor old Bob would pull this thing out and he's fighting the biggest guy I've ever seen this thing bloody doing this and had a break on it. Had a disc brake on the on the firewall to stop the firewall, but he couldn't activate that until he put it in the back of the truck and he wrestled the thing back in the back of the truck, 
put it back in there. The car, the start back, went back up, and then um, yeah, three big revs and rocket off the stand. Wally is really a master of this. He rocket off the stand, back tire come past him like a speedway bike, and back tire would be kissing arm car on the left hand side, and this thing would go out and around and just. When you're not, you, you couldn't see anything. It's just the whole place is fogged out in rubber. And when you're chasing him, most of these runs are at night time. So when you're chasing him, you couldn't see anything. You couldn't go too fast in the, in the start vehicle because you wouldn't know where it was. It's rubber everywhere. And um, anyway, just an amazing, <laughs> amazing vehicle. And um, and the thing about Wally is he engines do nine one point seconds on it, uh, which you know Oof. was fast for by 170 mile an hour back then. But the bottom line was he still got half a mile to get there. I'd run, I ran a little bit better ET on it, but um, yeah, I wasn't as brave, so I was running a lot straighter line. So, uh, yeah, but uh, that was an amazing machine. And as I say, to me, it was the most amazing vehicle I'd ever, uh, ever raced the, the, the racetracks in Australia. And then you build a rocket powered bike. Is it true they tried to kind of ban it from Australian tracks back then? Is that right? Yeah, uh, I probably should go back to stage if I can. I really got interested in going faster after the V8 bike. Was, you know, the, the thing about the V8 bike is when you came off and it used to chase you, and it was bloody scary. So this thing, you'd be sliding down, you'd be sliding on your belly, and then you're sliding, you're rolling the side. I like that one, that's what I always do, but you're sliding all over the place to keep the head off and we're getting burnt. You'd be sliding down the track 170 miles an hour, the bike would be chasing you. And uh, a couple of times, I ripped my ear off a couple of times, smashed my helmet, ripped my ear off with it and, and a few things like that. And uh, anyway, uh, yeah, I thought, I, I want to make something that goes a lot faster, but it's a lot safer. So uh, a couple of guys I was talking to, they said, well, what are you thinking? I said, a rocket bike. They said, a bloody rocket bike. <laughs> they never heard of one. They'd never heard of one. Anyway, so at the time, I was, I was doing a bit of, you know, I was looking at the rockets and stuff, the rocket uh, funny cars and dragsters in America were running. Anyway, so I started building my own rocket. I built my own rocket engine. Well, two rockets. This thing had two rockets on it and built them up. And anyway, set up a test test rig in, in, in Perth here somewhere and tried, tried running them on hydrogen peroxide. So these, these were known as a uh, monopropellant. So they ran the oxidizer with 90% hydrogen peroxide. And um, so, in other words, that ran by itself. If you blew that into the, into the engine through a catalyst, it self ignited, it, it, it decomposed, made a heap of power. So that's what the rocket cars did at this time. But I had all the NHRA rules and everything on making them, but no one could ever give you a design on an engine. So I did my best to make up an engine. And um, anyway, uh, yeah, to, to, to run the bike, I thought I've got to really make this impressive. It's got to put on a good show. I can't be, can't be uh, sort of taken down the track when no one's seen a rocket before and be screwing around and say, oh, this didn't work because of that. So I caught up with a good mate of mine. I was flying out to to to, uh, to California to uh, to meet an absolute legend, fearless Fred Goski, who was a uh, who drove a rocket punny car for the Detroit Mobacks. Actually, as it turned out, the Chicago Patrol. And um, <laughs> I didn't know that at the time, but anyway, here's me. So I rock up at I rocked up at uh, Fred's place in, in in Thousand Oaks in California with the airways bag with my rocket motor in there, and uh, which carried on. Eh? <laughs> you carried it as hand luggage, did you? <laughs> yeah, done that quite a few times back in the Fords and back in the old days. Bottom line was, um, yeah, no one knows what they were or whatever, and uh, so it was no big deal. But anyway, I rocked up at the Fred Goski's place. It was a, one of the first gated communities in, in California, and uh, met with Fred. And uh, anyway, around his house, I'll never forget this. The day I died, there's uh, 36, I counted 36 barrels of rocket fuel stored from his front door all the way around the house, around to the back. <laughs> And um, I said, oh, they're empty barrels. They're FMC barrels, um, um, Fred, aren't they? They're empty. He said, no, they're all full. He said, I bought them all. 
And he said, plus I've got another shop and I've got a heap of rocket fuel down there. I thought, God almighty. And uh, anyway, long story there, but bottom line was I showed him my rocket, rocket, rocket engine. So the next day we got out and after having a couple of beers that night, held him my rocket engine. He said, mate, he said, you've done a good job. He said, before we pull it apart, he said, how many screens do you have in your catalyst? And the catalyst is the thing that makes, makes it operate. That's a screen back inside it. I said, oh, I've got two, two screens. He said, two? He said, well, what do you expect to do with two screens? I said, well, how many do you run? He said, 100. I said, you're joking. <laughs> <laughs> this stuff was 15 bucks a square inch, or where it was in Perth. And I thought, oh, God, well, that's the end of the rocket there. But anyway, bottom line was we found it was wrong with the engine, but while we're there talking, there's the, there's the, the rocket go-kart that I ran was hanging on the roof of his shed. And um, anyway, uh, I said to Fred, I said, how about we get that down and give it a run? He said, mate, he said, as long as your ass points to the ground, he said, that thing's never coming down from the roof. So two days later, we had it down <laughs> on the ground, blew the tyres up, blew the tyres up. We took it out to a place called Calico Boico in, in, in Northern California and, uh, and ran it. And uh, the thing I've got to say is, mate, the first time I'd ever sat my ass in a thrust-powered car or thrust-powered vehicle, I thought, mate, why would you screw around with a piston engine? Uh, just straight away, it just, just, just made so much sense that to get power, if you want to go fast, you've you, you got to be thrust-powered, and uh, that's my take. And um, anyway, so, um, yeah, we got this thing down, blew the tyres up, 90 PSI, the little go-kart tyres, and I was about to climb in the thing. I had to use his fire suit. I never knew I was going to be having a drive, but plus the drivers, everything you got for those rocket cars is uh, uh, Teflon-lined. So you've got Teflon lines inside the fire, you know, everything, gloves, helmet, uh, goggles, the whole thing's Teflon-lined. So I've got all this gear on there, so he's a pretty big guy, so I'm sitting there like a Michelin man sitting in this go-kart. I got the green light. He said, just take your time. Don't worry about trying to buddy ET or anything. Just wait for the tree. comes down. Take off when you're right. Light goes green. I'm sitting there. I thought, shit, whoosh, nail it, the throttle. And I have never shit myself so much in my life. <laughs> but the, the, the thing before I left the line, the thing that left me line really burnt my ass and probably but probably made me so mad was that I had to buy a barrel of rocket fuel. And back then it was something like $350, which is a lot of money. I think it was for, uh, for me, I think it was 60 gallons. 60 gallons, 350 bucks. And uh, anyway, I had to buy that. So anyway, before I, before I even ran it, so we learned, you know, I learned how to purge it and do all the stuff I had to do with the rocket. But anyway, um, yeah, Fred said to me, I'll give you 10% power. I said, 10% power? I said, what's the point of running the bloody thing with 10% power? And uh, he said, you're getting 10% power. He said, you shouldn't even be in this thing. I've told you the story. You shouldn't be in this thing. He said, there's two guys been killed in these previously. He said, the tyres explode when they go too fast and they go under the armour and you're dead. He said, 10% power. Anyway, I was feeling it. Jeez. So then he walks away. Light goes green. I hit the throttle. I'm like, holy shit. All I saw him standing at half track was out the corner of my eye. This thing went, sailed past him that quicker than I've ever done anything in my life. Went past there, this had two parachutes on it. Anyway, put both chutes out, turned it around, that ran, ran right at the end of the uh, braking area, hit all the dumps all there, had a, had a, uh, had a, um, uh, a um, nose-up dump on the, on the front of the car, had, had all sorts of dumps, about three different dumps on it, dumped everything. He came running down the track, he ran all the way down the end of the track, he said, you dopey little Aussie bastard. He said, you put two, two parachutes out, you've dumped the nitrogen, you've done this, you've done that. It's going to take us an hour now to turn this thing around again. My heart's still on this. I said, thank Christ for that. <laughs> you broke a record with that go-kart. It sounded like an amazing machine. And the pictures I've seen were you literally, Roscoe, almost lying down in it, 
surrounded, weren't you, by by what you needed to power that thing? Yeah, you're sort of lying in the middle of the hole with the guts of the rocket. So, yeah, you've got a nitrogen tank on one side, you've got the hydrogen peroxide tank on the other, and they come together and the, uh, well, the nitrogen goes on top of the hydrogen peroxide and you've got a thing called the dome loader. The more power you want to make, the more pressure you put on top of that, uh, that oxidiser or that, or that uh, propellant. And uh, to push it in the engine, so the more pressure you put on there. So as I say, we started off with uh, the 10% for 300 psi on this on this tank. We could have gone to 3,000. Oh. I think it meant 3,000 to go to the moon. This thing, a lot of power, 2,000 pounds rust engine. So in other words, if you stood, stood on a task and looked at wheat, you know, that's the way to go, it goes straight up. So, yeah, very powerful machine. But, yeah, we end up running at 253 mile an hour. I'm not too good at my kilometres, 253 mile an hour and uh, 5.97, I mean, 5.97 second ET. That is insane, mate, from a go-kart. Did you say 253 mile an hour? What are we talking there? We're talking 400 and something Ks, is that right? Somewhere, yeah. Yeah, I'm not good at but yeah. Yeah. yeah, over 400 Ks. And, uh, but as I say, they do it, they do it in, in a blur, just in an absolute blur, just absolute mind-boggling. And... I've got to say this before before I even went to America. I caught up with I've got a couple of heroes and a couple a couple of my heroes and um, yeah, my greatest Australian hero is a guy called Ken Warby, who everyone should know. Yes, the fastest man in water in the world, and I end up driving for Ken, driving jet funny cars and jet dragsters and stuff like that. And uh, later, but yeah, he's always been a mate of mine. But before I went to America to do this trip, I had my rocket engine in the bag, as I said in the Airways bag, and. Um, yeah, I stopped having dinner with Ken and uh, he said, why in God's name are you going to America to, to screw around with rockets? I said, Ken, uh, I want to be the fastest guy ever to go down the quarter mile. He said, why? I said, because that's drag racing. I said, it's, it's whatever, I want to be the fastest. At least about to say I've been such and such mile out down the drag trip, no one's ever, ever got that fast. He said, well, who gives a shit? I said, well, I do, I do for a start. But he said, no, nah. he said, that's not where it's at. He said, drag racing, you put on the show. He said, you're a showman. So it doesn't matter what you're doing. And a lot of, you know, a lot of the top field guys in that wouldn't agree. But the bottom line is, if you want to get paid in drag racing, you've got to put on a show. And uh, he said to me, why don't you drive one of my jets? I said, oh, again, yeah. uh, you know, there you are, baby. And he always had an American guy come over and drive here too and drive the other car and said, oh, mate, oh, yeah. yeah, it's rockets to me, mate. Anyway, so when I came back and after learning about the price of the screen, I thought, well, there's no wonder what I'm about. I thought 100 screens to put this rocket to make it work. But at the same time, a very good friend of mine uh, was uh, Dennis Ceramus, who was the, uh, the boss of Andra in, uh, in in Brisbane. For people that are listening that may not know, Andra, of course, the governing body of drag racing um, in Australia. And uh, he, uh, I was back in Perth, but I contacted Dennis and said, mate, I said, uh, uh, we want to run this thing. I want to take it down the local track and give it a run and... Uh, and because I bought the go-kart engine back, I actually bought, ended up buying the go-kart. I bought it back and I was going to put a go-kart engine in a bike, which was way too powerful for it, but they didn't know that. But he said to me, mate, anyway, so I had the letter hanging on my uh, on my wall for, for a thousand years where telling me, Andrew was telling me all about uh, how, um, how, 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 how um, dangerous rockets are and they do this and they do that, whatever. Nothing specific, but just the you know, accelerate their quick and... And whatever, and then at the end of the letter, I always always laughed. At the end of the letter, it said, "And besides, there's no one in our organisation that knows anything about rockets." <laughs> well, geez, it was a great letter. So anyhow, that that hung there, but then the bike got hung up, and uh, I think I covered up one day and a fit of madness and took it all down the tip.
The Guinness World Record for the fastest boat in the world is held by the jet-powered hydroplane Spirit of Australia, which reached an estimated speed of 344.86 miles per hour. Bet the seagulls threw up their chips when that thing went past. I want to get to, if I can, Roscoe, Aussie Invader. When you think about the different iterations, the, the different cars that you've built along the way, the different versions, this has been a 50-year project, hasn't it? What was what was the genesis for it? What was the point where you thought, right, I'm going to build Aussie Invader 1, and what was that first mission all about? Well, I went there again, uh, as I say, I, I took the advice from Ken Warby and uh, started looking at jets. I started having a couple of rides in jets, and uh, yeah, I did they're pretty good. I... Uh, First couple of, on the licensing pass, I actually uh, broke a couple of records at uh, the old Canberra track, uh, running a couple of speed records and stuff like that. But um, the thing is, to, to have my own car, um, I did a deal with Ken that I'd own my own car. I couldn't afford to buy one. But if I went across to Chicago and I helped build, uh, help, help put the chassis and that together for, for one of the cars, um, I'd qualify to do that. So I went across and uh, went across to Chicago. I was still pretty young. I still, I don't know what it was, early 20s, I suppose. And, and, uh, Moved into a sleazy uh, motel in, in south uh, South Chicago and worked with a guy called Romeo uh, Palomides, who um, uh, Romeo Palomides, who was a uh, top uh, jet dragster chassis builder. And at that time, the Yanks had built many, many, many dragsters, and Romeo had the had the name at the time as the best. So I went and worked with Romeo, and uh, yeah, we put the car together. And um, yeah, two years later, I, uh, I ended up uh, end up owning that car, but absolutely. Uh, absolutely mind-boggling car that, you know, you put it, the beautiful thing about the Aussie 1 car, Aussie 1 and Aussie 4, which I built later, had the J34 Westinghouse engines in them. And these things were passive bulletproof. They, were, um, uh, they had like what they call stellite turbine, turbines in them. So they get the temperature, like, you know, jet people, I, I was in a jet the other day with someone, jet, jet fighter. Anyway, the bottom line was they go for a start in a, in, a, in, a, in, a, in a Hornet or something like that, and obviously your EGT, your exhaust gas temperature, has got to go... Got to, got to reach a peak. You can't, you can't exceed that or you put the engine in the bin. I said to this guy the other day, I was with, I said, it's a dragster's when you still do a 10,000 degree start every time we ran it. And I put out a, a, what we call the jet business, the mook out here. That's my job. You're sitting in the car with the engine behind it. Holy shit, that's got to blow. That's got to blow. And you look at the temperature gauge of the scale. But once you get the airflow going through, you see the temperature come back. And yeah, we ran these about uh, um, 650 degrees, something like that. But um, Six thousand five hundred degrees, but um, yeah, they were um, yeah, they were, they were something else. Roscoe, that's amazing. So you just detailed a bit about the the engine there and how much you love those those particular engines. What about the rest of it? What was it? Some of the learnings from your time in America, as far as the chassis build was concerned for uh, for Aussie Invader One. What what? How did that come together? The car. Well, Aussie One, as I say, that was built by Romeo, and that was the, that was Ken Warby's car. So we owned that car. So that was Aussie One. Um, but we progressed from there. I thought, well, we'll get a two-car two car team happening. So, um, yeah, Aussie, Aussie 2 was our first land speed car. That's our first land speed car, and that sort of had a square front on it that we built, and that's when we set the Aussie land speed record in. But in the meantime, I was making the, the land speed thing was just, you know, was costing a lot of time and every cent we had to sort of keep it going, uh, which it still is with Aussie 5. But... The, I thought to myself, well, we built another dragster. So Aussie Four became a uh, became a jet dragster, another jet dragster that uh, that we raced in Australia. And um, yeah, so we had the two cars side by side, covered a lot of tracks and what have you. But uh, both Aussie One and Aussie Four were basically the same cars, same power, same speed. I want to touch back on on 
Aussie too, if we can, please, because you brought it up there a moment ago about the 1994 Australian land speed record. That was a very special day, Roscoe. What are your, how vivid are the recollections from that moment? Well, that to me was only two years ago, mate. So, uh, <laughs> <that's>, uh, <laughs> yeah. no, that was, yeah, I, I still look back on that. And even when we did that then, like uh, um, the same question people ask me every day, when are you going to be running more? When we built Aussie, when we built Aussie 2, uh, it was amazing. It was an amazing story. What we wanted to do was put a car together and there was no information anywhere how you built a land speed car, how you built a land speed car. So I got on very good with uh, Art Arpons, who I mentioned once before, in Akron, Ohio. And I rang Art up one day and it was even an expensive exercise back then to ring someone, as you know. You, I had to go down the phone and use the super glue phone to about ring America and stuff <laughs> like that. But, but anyway, but... Uh, uh, yeah, I ended up bringing Art, and I said to Art, I said, can you just tell me, mate, we're trying, we're going to make a start on this land speed car, and I just want to know, can you just tell me how did you arrive at the specs for your first chassis? I said, I've got a book here that says it's 22 foot 6 long, and it's 8 foot 6, 8 foot 6 wide. How did you come up with those numbers? And he said, oh, that's the size that I try on my truck. <laughs> So I thought, well, that's, that's a good place to start. That's a good place to start, Rusty. So uh, anyway, so I laid, um, this is a classic, I laid, laid, laid four bits of chrome molly tube out on the ground and uh, on, on my home shop here, laid them out and said, oh, listen, got a plastic seat, I cut the legs off the seat. So right, this is where we'll sit. Well, the engine's got to be here. Uh, we'll do this, we'll do that. Anyway, so to get a perspective of the car, I couldn't even afford any more chrome molly. So we've got a couple of old, old packing boxes and put them up against the rails when we wanted them, tied, the, tied them on there and set the, set the frame rails up and stuff like that. Anyway, back back then, whenever that was, I can't recall what it was, but, um, yeah, 20 years ago, 30, 25 years ago, the TVs, all the TV networks were fighting with each other to get news. So someone heard a whisper in Channel 7 that um, that uh, we were um, building a land speed car in Malalu. So next thing, the word went around. So I had four TV channels out the front of my house. It was bloody embarrassing, I tell you, because all they had was four bits of tube. And they all come to see the land speed car. And um, anyway, so they came in there and I put on the bravest face I could and I said, all right, well, what we're going to do, we're going to get an Australian-built engine. Uh, so their ATAR, or the Mirage engine, is being built in Fishman's Bend in Melbourne. I'm going to get my hands on one of them. It's going to have an Australian engine. It's going to have this. Anyway, I put on the best uh, best uh, story I could. Anyway, they all said, oh, thanks very much. And went away. I don't even know if this stuff went on there. I can't even remember. <laughs> but um, anyway, one of the Channel 7 guys left something in the, in the left his uh, left something in the shed and I went out the car and I went out, the, went out the back of his car to get back to him and he signed to his mate to get his back to us and he said, that guy's got to be the greatest wanker on earth. <laughs> <laughs> but the naysayers, the naysayers have never worried you, Roscoe, ever, have they? <laughs> ever. No, no, no. And we're still, still plenty of them around, mate. And uh, But anyway, no, we, but building that car was absolute, um, absolute, um, you know, it was a, mega amount of work. It took us 10 years to do it. And I never thought, I almost never thought we'd get it finished. And the bottom line is using a jet engine. Well, the hardest thing was getting our hands on the jet engine. So we knew what we wanted. We come up with some drawings for how the engine mounts worked and everything like that. We put the chassis together, um, being borrowed and still everything we could do, and stole everything we could do to, to build the chassis, built the chassis, built a brilliant job on the chassis, engine mounts in there, but we still didn't have an engine. So in the meantime, I'm running my Aussie One car around. I'm doing a lot of shows at all the air bases around the country. And um, anyway, I, I, I end up uh, making a really good friend at 77 Squadron in, uh, in Williamtown. And um, I said to him, Neil, I've got to have 
an ATAR engine, an Australian built ATAR engine. And he said, mate, you'll never see one. You'll never see one. He said, we've got 17 aircraft that have been cannibalised to keep the other ones going. And he said, well, you'll never get an engine. I said, well, we've got the chassis together back in Perth. Oh, anyway, cut. before that, I put a show on for the, all, the, all the troops, fired the car up and everything like that. And yeah, they were really impressed with all the, and made a lot of friends. And uh, anyway, but he said to me, no, you'll never, you'll never see, uh, I've never seen an ATAR engine like that. I said, well, I've got it. I said, we're back in Perth. I said, we're going to set the land speed record. It's something we're doing for Australia. It's not an ego trip for me or the team. It's just something that, that's my life's work. We're going to do it. But we need to say to our engine. He said, mate, he said, I don't mean to disappoint you. I said, no, you haven't disappointed me. I'll give you a ring in a couple of weeks. Just have a look around and see if you can find one. So anyway, this went on and on and on. And probably, I, I can't remember how long it went on. Probably a year. But still, we're progressing, making more fuel tanks and everything for the car and, and whatever. And I come home on one Friday night. And um, anyway, um, um, the missus said, oh, uh, Neil's just running out. He just... Uh, give him a ring. So I rang him up and he said, Roscoe, he said, get your ass on a plane tonight. St. Mary's auctions. He said, I'll put poor engines through the through the system. He said, these things were whatever. Um, but they're a late entry. No one knows what they are. They're late entry. They've just hit the, hit the floor down there. It's a big auction. Get your bum across here. So um, they got on an airplane. I couldn't even afford an air, air, airplane ticket. But anyway, somehow I got to St. Mary's and I was crying. I was walking around this auction all day and everything they had on, this, on, 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 the, on the ground. Beautiful hot day. But everything they had out, out on, on display, everything I could have bought, everything was on the shop, just gauges, bloody controls, bloody all sorts of stuff, nuts and bolts, titanium nuts and bolts, everything. I could have bought the whole lot, but I couldn't afford to buy anything. So I'm looking at these engines right at the end of the day and they're in four big steel cocoons. Um, so they come in this, the core engine comes in this big uh, big cocoon, big steel cocoon. These four engines had the lid, lid lifted up on them and... My friend uh, from the Air Force, Neil, said, uh, I'll send down four guys down to show you which engine to buy and show you the logs on the engine, which one you want. So the bottom line was these were listed, the last, very, as I said, the four last listings of the day, and the Rafis told me the one you want is the second one in line, which is, for example, 357, number 357. So anyway, hot day, auctioneers getting pushed around on a big, uh, on a big stand, the guys pushing him around, and... Um, Anyway, got the got the first engine there, and and uh, the auctioneer says, "Oh, he said these are late, late, uh, late entry." He said, "I don't know what they are. Some sort of engine. Um, what sort of engine? What uh, anyone want to open a bid on them?" And I thought, "Well, I sit back and I wonder what's going on here." And um, anyway, so uh, the guys climb all over. Them. I don't know, junk guys or who they were, but people climb all over these engines and look. I thought, "Oh, haven't got a hope in hell of buying these." Anyway, so bidding started on them, and from memory, I, don't, I can't remember what they went for, but I think they got to something like four grand. And the auctioneer says, stuff it. He says, too late in the day. Too late in the day, he said, uh, the cocoon's worth more than $4,000. And he went to the guy, he said to the guy, right, we're out of here. So he started, he started getting pushed away, and it took a minute for the penny to drop. Mate. I said, hey, mate, I got on an aeroplane at midnight last night to come across here and bid on one of these one of these items. Because you're not happy with the, with the four, um, you can't throw them all in. He said, which one do you want? I said, that's okay. Number two in line. He said, what would be a bid for it? 500. Sold. Next one. 500. 500. <laughs> I bought the four of them for 500 bucks each. Unbelievable. But it gets back again to the desire. As I say, I've been chasing these things forever. Um, you know, the bottom line was as soon as I got them, I thought, where in God's name am I going to find $2,000? So I rang the missus up and said, sweetheart, can you, can you put your good dress on and go out and see if you can get us 2000 bucks? Anyway, bottom line was everyone then wanted them. So it's 40 guys coming in. We said, mate, oh, that one there, you don't need that, whatever. And the good engine went back to Willytown. We put the afterburner on and we ran it, flew it back to Perth, and then we rolled it in the car. 
And one of the most amazing things to this day was we set the whole car up to take the engine mounts, the whole thing. We put the engine in the car just to line it all up. And obviously a jet engine or a rocket's got to have a one degree nose down. So it's actually pushing the nose, pushing the nose down. We're trying to set that up and jig that up. We thought, what's going on here? We couldn't get the, couldn't get the engine angle to go one degree. And then we looked at it and then we found out the engine wasn't straight. Oh. So in other words, instead of being dead straight, they had a kick in the middle of it. And I rang, I rang up my, my contacts back at the running town. I said, are these things bent? Do they have a bend in the middle of them? I said, no, no, they're not bent. They're straight. I said, well, there's something going on here. There's just, there's, an engine can't be bent. It can't be bent. But I said, it's, it's, you put a straight edge on the front of the engine, the front of the engine there, and you put a straight edge on the back. It's like that. And um, I can't remember how many degrees, but I told them all the guts. I said, oh. They had all the engineers go out and look at all the engines and stuff like that. But anyway, they come back to me about a week later and said, holy shit, these things are bent in the middle. So junction section behind the turbine had a 30 mil shorter top in the junction section. Anyway, but no one even knew that. Now, that's the thing that amazed me. Amazed me was that the, so we had to change a couple of, couple of bits on the remounting of the car. So obviously the arse ended up a bit higher. But, uh, yeah, that was quite amazing. And uh, But, yeah, we, we did a lot of tricks to it. These, things, these engines have so many parts on them, gun dips, approach controls. They have different things on them. The crap we took off that engine, you, could, you would have weighed would have weighed half the weight of the engine. It's just a big pile of stuff we take off the engine. Then one of the other things we did, we met one of the cleverest uh, Mirage guys, the RAF had at the time, Tony Wolf up in Darwin. Absolute trooper, absolute legend. And um, yeah, got Tony to come down and have a look at him. We said, mate, we really want to hot rod this thing. We got a, a, a standard, I thought they put out something like nearly uh, 14,000 pounds of thrust. Well, we said, we want to get this up to 18,000 pounds. And mate, he said, well, I don't think you're going to be... So I said, well, what are our options? He said, well, obviously, we tip a lot more fuel in the engine. We get the engine run a lot hotter. We put a lot, lot, more, lot more fuel in the afterburner. We can overspeed it. So we set the overspeed so it goes up revs higher. And uh, you're taking the weight off it. And what else you've done? Plus, we had a different pressurised fuel system that delivered maximum pressure on the on that fuel control. So anyway, ran it. we took it up to PSC Bush and shaved it down. And I think the best we got out of it was 17,000-something pound. But... Not bad from 14,000 to 17,200, I think it was, pounds. But that was a jet engine, mate, and now we're in the rocket business, so it's a bit trickier. We'll, we'll talk about the rocket stuff in a second, but I just want to finish that chapter because it was such a special car with, with two things. Firstly, the numbers. The Australian record, which I think still stands, you'll, you'll tell me if I haven't got that right, 500 mile an hour, 802.6 km k's an hour is that correct yeah yeah that's correct just amazing what did that feel like what does that sensation feel like roscoe now, that's, a, that's a good question it's really is for, 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 for anyone in motivation would find this hard to appreciate but um what you're doing what you're doing um rusty you're driving your car over the curved earth so we're at a place called uh lake air now so a huge big salt pan absolutely amazing place if you ever get the opportunity to see it south australia it's about 400 k's northwest of the city of adelaide i think isn't it so yeah that's it yeah out that way and iron knobs the nearest town they sort of come in on a dirt track for i don't know 100 kilometers and but anyway but when you see it it's just absolutely mind-boggling to come over hills hot dusty that bloody flies and then where is this place you pull over a hill and you're like holy shit you see 180 kilometers well you can't see that far but there's 180 kilometer strip of white concrete. It's as hard as concrete and it's bloody, it's, it's awesome. Anyway, uh, yeah, the first time we went there, we were absolutely blown away. But um, what's, it, what's it feel like on your body and things like that, Roscoe, and, and you know, controlling the machine at that sort of speed? Well, 
the G, the G, I think, I think the maximum G, I think we went on that was about three G, which to us, like drag racing, uh, you know, in the jets we go five G, five G, and when you put the two two marine, we had the cross ply shoots. When we put the shoots out, we go negative eight. So in drag racing, we've done up the three inch belts, you know, the big Simpson three inch bloody belts. You couldn't read them; you just done up that tight in them. And as soon as I pop those shoots, that stretch that much, I just about whack my helmet on the on, on the on the steering wheel. I just, you know, and then they go back and they'd be normal again. Like, Jesus, you know, you couldn't understand how, how these seatbelts would do it. But bottom line is the dragster was quite a wild ride and nothing nothing could be with like a rocket car or a top fuel car or anything like that, but it's got a pretty wild ride. But to get in, so the land speed car only would go probably 3G at the most. And um, But the big thing with driving the car is, so you're on this white player or you're on white salt lake with a black line put down it and a marker barrel every kilometre. So you had to know where you were on the track. There's no other way of knowing where you are. So a big number on the track because obviously if you miss the finish line and you keep the power on, you'd, <laughs> you'd end up in Woomera or somewhere. So, yeah. Um, yeah. yeah. But the thing is you sit, sit your bum in the car, car starts up, crew back away, take off, and I'm on comms with them all the way. But the bottom line is you, you're looking over the curve to your earth. So when, you, when you're running the car or when I'm sitting in the car, I can see three barrels and I just hit the top of the fifth one over, and you see the curve to earth go that way and you see it go that way. So it's like a ball. And then when you run the car, when you run it, I'm, and when I first started running, first few runs I did, I get out and think, holy shit, my neck hurts. And, um, and then we look at the onboard vision. I had a camera look at there and let me bum out the seat. Look, my helmet pressed up hard against the top of the roll coat subconsciously, trying to look over the hill just to make sure there's no emus or even though you've got spotters, but no emus or uh, kangaroos or something in the track. You know, it's really like driving your road car over a hill pretty fast. And you go, no one's, no one's over the hill type yeah, thing. And uh, yeah. same scenario. So that's all the way. You, you're going over, over the curve, you're like that. And, um, and even the spectators, we say to people, it's not really a spectator sport. Channel 7 came out there with us on three different things, three different excursions where there's some brilliant vision around somewhere. I think it might be on a website or whatever, but they brought studio cameras out. They set things up, they got big platforms up some of the best vision that's ever been seen in the land speed business. But the amazing thing even with those guys was so they'd set, they'd set the cameras up at a predetermined spot and they'd hear me on the radio, okay, you've got start clearance, Aussie invaders rolling. So I'd like the wicket and, and, and be heading heading back southbound, for example, and the camera's looking over their eyes and they say, well, where is he? Where is he? Where is he? No, I can't see him yet. And then someone would say, oh, there's a plume on the horizon there. They can see a plume. Next thing it turns into a black dot, there's a bigger black dot, next bigger, and then whoosh, next thing it's gone past. And then, holy shit. It's, you know, it's, <laughs> that fast. That fast, yeah, yeah. So, as I say, because of the curve to your earth, they can't see it, so I'm, I'm down here running fast, and then they're here sort of thing. And, yeah, anyway. I love the analogy of, of it being like over the top of a ball, mate. That's a, that's a great a great description. Hey, just before we move on to to the current project, because I know that's – uh, that's a big mission, and it's one that's consumed you for for some time now. Can we complete, if you're comfortable with it, by talking about you went back and and endeavoured to better that mark to to chase a new record in in Invader Two, and in many ways, mate, are you, am I right in saying that you're lucky to be here to tell the story today? Oh, in in my uh, in my motor racing history, I've had a lot of lot of uh, thrills and spills, and this was. Uh, I, I think the hardest thing for anyone looking at it from the outside is when you're doing something without any money. And we went across there with the arse out of our pants. We, put, we, we had a camp there. We put it over the radio, a radio message. No one can come out. We can't give you – you can't use a dunny. We can't give you a drink of water. We can't do anything for you. Watch it on TV. We, 
if you come out and you tread on a broken bottle and you cut your foot or a snake bites you or you have a heart attack or something and you take our team away, our medical team away, or a flying doctor, we're screwed. Stay at home and watch it on TV. Anyway, still lots of people came out. But, um, yeah, bottom line was we ran it and ran it. And, you know, we, we actually ran that car, uh, let me get it right, we ran it to uh, five, 528 mile an hour on our first run one way and then came back the other way uh, a bit slower. We... Bottom line was um, we couldn't afford to stay there a day longer. So we went, and I, that, was, that was possibly the biggest disappointment in my whole career. We could have set, a, I believe we could have set a world land speed record on that trip. But we had a team, they were all volunteers, their wives are back home, they're, they're homesick, they want to get home. An engineer, a worldwide renowned engineer, John Ackroyd, came across to help us out. He was there, absolute legend. Hard to help us out, but yeah, he had to get back to the UK. And his advice, the team was a very, very good guy. But we sat down. He said, "I suggest we pack it up. We come back another day." And I, uh, I remember looking at John with a tear in my eye and saying, "John, we can't afford to come back another day, mate. We can't do it. The weather's here. The car's here. I believe the car's got it. We can't do it." Anyway, being a uh, being a democracy, we all took a vote on it, and there's probably three guys said, "Let's say and do it." And all everyone else wanted to go. They said, "We'll do it. We'll come back next year." Anyway. Never got the weather again. The following year it did that rained. I think that was, I can't remember what it was. Anyway, following year it rained. The track was rained out. Next year was looking really bad weather-wise and, and uh, we went to all the trouble then of setting up a village. We donated a set of vans, van bodies. We set a whole village uh, up at our rat base up in Pierce. I think there's something like uh, 14 of these vans, put windows in them, wired them up, did the whole thing and trained them doing that. That was a mission itself. We took... <laughs> We took all these across to, uh, with the help of a company called GKR Trucking here in Perth, we took these things across um, to, uh, to Iron Knob and then brought them in 180 kilometres for the road trains, which we weren't allowed to do. But anyway, not the GKR side, but our side, we're over height, we're overweight and we're over width. We loaded all the stuff on, had a crane on there. I'm, I don't even know if I should say this, but we're driving up through the, through the outer blocks and I'm pulling all the wires down with the, with the fork because I'm going through the place we're that high. Mermaids chased us out in the back of South Australia somewhere and, oh, mate, we, we, we got off the track. Anyway, setting that up was absolutely awesome. But to do that, to do all that, Rusty was, um, was people could, could not understand just how much effort went into doing that and then to turn around and say, um, oh, no, let's pack up and come back next year. So it was really three years before we could come back again. And um, yeah, by the time we'd done that, when we were ready to run the record, the Poms had gone out, gone uh, on the 763 mile hour, where all we were out to break at that time was the uh, the Richard Noble record. He ran 633 mile hour. Anyway, 633 mile hour. So all we had to do is... So bottom line was we went out a bit later and went 638. We went 638 mile hour on a one-way pass. And, um, and uh, but then pulled the pin and had to, had to go back. Came back the year, the third year later, when the weather was right, ran the car, track was... Track was ratchet, it was soft, it was bloody, everything was wrong. Everything was against us. Huge effort to get there, as I say. Um, yeah, no funding to pack up and say, let's come back again later. We had to do it. So I decided to run the car. We had all sorts of problems with the car. We were getting bogged with it. All sorts of stuff was happening. We running off course. I said, well, we've got to have a run. I've got to run it really fast. on a southbound run and see, see how fast we can go. And the car, just so you understand how it happened, the front track of the car is narrow, a little bit narrower than the back. And what actually happened is the front wheels punched through the salt. And uh, as I say, we approached 600 mile hour on that run, but broke through the, the wheels broke through the salt, a lot of downforce in front of the car, broke through the salt. Then one of the rear wheels dropped into that track and the car just tramlined. 
And I was looking at the timing gear, possibly two mile away. I thought, holy shit, this don't look too flash. I couldn't put a shoot out at that stage because it just would have torn off the car. So I just had to wait for the airspeed to slow us down and things get closer and closer on the chin. Here we go, bang, hit the chute, it held, hit the other chute and then ran out of the timing gear and destroyed that car. And um, the noise it made, I thought I was dead. It just made a, one, a hell of a bang. Uh, there's a really neat vision of it somewhere. If you, it's, I think it's on their website also, again, where we ingested a, a timing marker, went through the engine, killed this engine, big black plume out the back of the engine. And the noise it made when it hit, it's just absolutely mind-boggling. I got out of the car and shit, I'm still alive. <laughs> Which I couldn't believe. And I walked around the front of the car and I was absolutely amazed. We laid this one-piece composite body up in the car that had never been done before for a land speed car, to my knowledge. And um, anyway, well, I just expect to see this thing a million bits. I went around there, we had a bit of a crack on one side, where it punched one side in, but it come out again. It's just the memory of brought, brought it out again and the um, engine was destroyed. But yeah, that's... Uh, it was a really good car, but anyway. That's the end of part one of my podcast with land speed record legend Roscoe McGlashan. Make sure you head back to the library and check out part two where we focus on his latest project, the mind-blowingly fast Aussie Invader 5R. What Roscoe needs for the mission, when it might happen, and where in the world he could possibly run this rocket-powered car. Listener.